All right, hello folks, my name is Kimo Gandal, and with my co-host... Hi, I'm Anthony Zagardi. We're uh, MUNers at UCI, bringing you the latest on global news, debate, and all which is international. Tonight with us, we have a guest from our, our MUN team, Peyton, would you like to introduce yourself? Hi, I'm Peyton. Nice to see you, and Eaters. Yes, so Peyton's from our MUN team as well. We'll be having various guests on throughout um, our podcasts here, ranging from faculty to other MUNers. Peyton's a veteran on our MUN team, so it'll be great to hear from him tonight in discussion. This is our first pilot episode of In Choir. Um, it's a podcast brought to you by MUN at UCI and focuses on the issues of international relations. Our hope here is to provide not only up-to-date facts, but to offer an entertaining view that often can get involved in some pretty convoluted theoretical lenses of international relations theory. Thus, we wish to show not only facts, but the practical reality of those facts as it exists in our world today. Um, today, our topic is focused on the COVID-19 virus. I know, a very broad topic that we hope to tackle in depth with all of you so we can get a better appreciation of the virus and its impact. Before we start, I would just like to thank everyone who's helped us start this entire podcast series for the rest of its time. I'm Christian Ibenez for his inspiration and leadership. Um, Ashima Seth for the amazing graphics and PR help. Uh, Hannah Slossier. Am I pronouncing your I always pronounce Hannah's name wrong, Anthony. Um, but Hannah, she's our wonderful Secretary General here at UCI. Without her, none of this would be possible. Thank you so much, Hannah, for leading us through this crisis. Uh, your leadership is much appreciated. And finally, uh, Danica Panita, who researches some of our news articles and gets us some of the up-to-date stuff on the show, gets a lot of the logistics for us. You know, these shows are always a lot of work to put on air. Now, starting, yeah. starting we're going to be, uh, my co-host, Anthony, is going to be giving us a few of the news introductions. All right, hello all. Um, here's a quick rundown of the news of the week. And because it's our first podcast of the um, little bit into, into the last month um, with regards to COVID-19 in the US and COVID-19 abroad. Okay, so our first main news story is going to be a update on Boris Johnson and the United Kingdom generally. Um, as many of you may know or may not know, Prime Minister Boris Johnson of the United Kingdom um, was admitted to St. Thomas Hospital in London on April 5th as he was seeing uh, increasingly strong symptoms of uh, COVID-19. He continues to receive standard oxygen treatment and is currently under intensive care. So he has not gone under the ventilator uh, protocol that many uh uh, people have who go into hospitals, um, which is a good sign for his health. Uh, it means they're just doing this basically on a precaution uh, for it not to get worse, for him not to having to work and be prime minister. He, uh, under the, according to the current coronavirus legislation, the restrictions are to be reviewed uh, 21 days. Um, leaving the next review eight days on April 16th. Um, that has to do with uh, the UK's restriction on social distancing and on uh, leaving the country. And um, Boris Johnson has deputized uh, Dominic Robb, which is one of his uh, ministers, um, one of his ministers of foreign affairs, uh, to serve as acting prime minister until uh, Boris Johnson gets back to full health. Our all right, here's some numbers and figures. Um, here's a quick update on the number of cases and deaths in the U.S. Currently, there are a thousand cases in the United States. Uh, Twenty covered and confirmed in the U.S. Um, we are still the um, we have overtaken uh, every other country as the number one. Um, as number one when it comes to raw population numbers, when it comes to coronavirus. However, we are not number one when it comes to um, per capita. So per capita, 
the U.S. has uh, 1,300 cases per 1 million people. Uh, to put that in perspective, uh, one of the countries in Europe, um, Iceland in particular, has 4,000 cases per 1 million. Uh, in case of any of you were wondering uh, how uh, the state of Italy is doing, Italy uh, is basically doubling our cases per 1 million people at 2,300. And uh, they have 100,000 confirmed and 17,000 deaths. I know Italy is a big subject right now uh, with how uh, basically their vertical society uh, and their close uh, knit society of families and uh, how their cities are built um, has led to a, a very horrible uh, outcome when it comes to this virus. Okay, so here is a rundown of the general uh, United States federal government's responses to coronavirus. Um, as many of you may know, uh, President Donald Trump has given uh, nearly daily uh, press conferences with uh, some of his leadership, including Dr. Anthony Fauci and others, um, regarding uh, the federal governments and various state governments' um, uh, dealings with coronavirus. If any of you want to watch any of these things, um, you can go on various government web websites and many of the governors, including Governor Gavin Newsom and Governor Andrew Cuomo, have uh, made it a point to have almost daily uh, press uh, briefings on uh, what their state is doing specifically to back coronavirus, if you want to hear it from um, those politicians' mouths. Okay, so currently the Senate is, the Senate Democrats are uh, trying to negotiate for a second um, emergency coronavirus bill. Um, with at least uh, $500 billion um, more in aid. This would come after, of course, the past uh, bill um, uh, last week, uh, the Coronavirus Act or CARES Act, that was supposed to be a $2 trillion stimulus package into the economy, which is uh, giving checks to uh, all Americans or most Americans that qualify uh, for up to $1,200 a person or $500 per child, uh, among other things, uh, such as a uh, payroll tax cut and um, just other things in order to stimulate the economy in the short term. So the, the bill that uh, the, that the uh, Democrats are proposing, like I said, would be 500 billion more in, in spending to create an emergency stopgap um, but they also backed a $250 billion uh, small business loan uh, bill, which um, Senator McConnell um, aims to pass on Thursday. So there is a lot of talk in uh, Congress currently about expanding on Congress's current actions, um, which are the United States government and the people in the short term. Okay, so now here's a quick update on how the uh, economy is doing today um, with response to this. So today, uh, uh, the stock market did rally uh, today uh, because of uh, coronavirus optimism. Um, so it seems that at the moment, the economy seems to be in a bit of a, um, a not a recovery necessarily, but what many uh, investors are pointing to is that there might there there may be a, a U-shaped curve in the stock market, which means that after a period of flattening after the a recent uh, uh, collapse in the S and P five hundred and the Dow Jones, uh, there may be a sharp uptick in uh, in stock prices. Um, so it, that may be a, an indication that once the U.S. Uh, can flatten the curve and can uh, eradicate uh, coronavirus cases uh, in the U.S., at least new cases, and small businesses and large businesses are able to open back up, the stock market might recover um, uh, rapidly and could result in a, uh, a rapid uh, re-employment of the people who have been and furloughed, laid off, or uh, 
or otherwise unemployed by the current um, coronavirus um, and sort of distancing policies. So one of the cases I want to talk about in a worldwide um, spectrum is I wanted to talk briefly about the case of Sweden because Sweden has had a very unorthodox um, way of dealing with uh, the coronavirus. Um, so specifically what has been happening in the country of Sweden is while most companies in Europe, most countries uh, in Europe have pursued a uh, strict social distancing policy similar to the US as the curve um, of cases has increased, has accelerated, Sweden has pretty much done the opposite until, until a few days ago. So what Sweden has done um, is Sweden has recommended that uh, older people stay in their homes and not work and keep a distance between them and other people. But for younger people, uh, many bars were open, many restaurants were open. Basically, most of the major gathering places in Sweden were open until a few days ago. Their uh, reasoning was they wanted to make sure that the economy of Sweden did not uh, collapse. And they thought that by doing this, they would still be protecting the most vulnerable. They have received a lot of criticism from the US and the UK and Germany and other countries and have since uh, retracted and have uh, announced recommendations for social distancing policy um, in partially because their rate of doubling of cases in Sweden is about six days as of now which is uh, much higher than the average of nine days when it comes to the rest of Europe. So it seems as if their social distancing policy did not uh, curb the infection rate. So now they're trying to curb the infection rate by having their new recommendations. Also, recently, the uh, Queen Elizabeth II of, of the United Kingdom uh, gave a, a short address where she basically tried to uh, emulate uh, feelings of, of uh, her father's 1939 address um, to the people of the UK during World War II, uh, because this uh, is uh, the UK's first wartime level uh, crisis since 1939. And um, she basically tried to put the country at ease and uh, tried to from an IR perspective, I guess, uh, assert her soft power when it comes to having a calming effect on her people and to the rest of Europe as a show of unity and strength among all Britons. So now I will uh, bring it back to Kimo Gandal, who will go over the United Nations current uh, affairs when it comes to COVID-19. Kimo? Yes, hello everybody. So a recent article published by Politico titled UN Goes Missing <clears throat> Uh, goes over two primary facts. One is the General Assembly is still meeting right now. Um, it only happened because of petition of smaller countries, actually. There is a large amount of dissent from other states, uh, namely those from the global north, such as uh, the Russian Federation. Uh, the General Assembly managed to pass a resolution calling for cooperation, uh, but as the delegates in the General Assembly noted, without Security Council approval, it has very little legal weight. Uh, as well, on top of this, a number of states, especially the United States, published press statements that went along with the General Assembly resolution, calling um, out China and taking, uh, from the article states it, quote unquote, taking swipes by implying that China has mismanaged the case. Um, kind of prior, as our news went over, the WTO is under fire for um, allegedly, according to President Trump, uh, colluding with China in these operations and acting irresponsibly. Next, uh, an article from the New York Times, uh, published quite recently, goes over, um, and this was published April 2nd, so what it specifically says basically is that while the Secretary General is calling for action solidarity, no Security Council meetings are happening. In fact, less as were happening um, right after uh, the Second World War and before the UN was formed during the Second World War. Um, 
Almost none are happening because the Russian Federation argues it's a violation of parliamentary procedure because you have to have in-person meetings. So Security Council is not meeting right now or they've failed to have teleconference uh, meetings because the Russian Federation insists it's against parliamentary procedure. And because of that, the Security Council has not made any active statements and a number of global wars continue to escalate. Next, um, an article from The Guardian uh, published recently, um, stipulated by Elizabeth Mira, uh, the acting executive secretary of the UN Convention on Biological Diversity, argued that countries should move to prevent future pandemics by banning wet markets uh, that sell live and dead animals for human consumption, but cautioned against unintended consequences. So very interesting coming from a head of the United Nations here um, and one of the head UN delegations calling for a banning of wet markets that could have a number of international implications, especially on uh, local affairs. And it's to be seen if that can actually be practically implemented. All right, at this time, we're done with the news. We're gonna start moving into the discussion section. Um, so basically what happens right now is we go over two primary resolutions. Um, the first resolution deals more with how states ought to operate. And the second resolution deals more with how the United Nations ought to operate. And we hope to frame these both in practical and theoretical matters. So the first is resolved states ought to close their borders. This is a controversial and fascinating topic. Um, let's start off with Anthony. Do you want to provide the first comment behind this? Uh, sure. My comment is um, that I do not want uh, states to have to close their borders on a, uh, on a direct level, uh, but by implementing social distancing policy within each country, that should be uh, the protocol that that would sensibly mean that people would hopefully be discouraged from crossing uh, uh, international borders. Um, however, in cases of uh, high population density um, and in cases of uh, particular- uh, So what would you uh, large... say, Anthony, uh, about things like, for instance, President Trump right now is attempting to use these funds to expedite building a wall on the Southern border. Do you think that that moves against kind of this notion of cooperatism you're bringing up? Um, I think for for the moment, um, countries, uh, especially countries that are locally bordered next to each other, need to be in in deep negotiation when it comes to dealing with COVID nineteen because uh, the virus can spread across borders. Um, but we should not be specifically worried about closing off borders to each other countries without negotiating um, how that is to be done uh, because. Again, if someone were to uh, fly um, over to another country or if someone were to take a boat to another country, they could still transmit the virus. And transmitting the virus is the most, uh, not uh, keeping the transmission of the virus as low as possible should be the number one goal of basically all countries around the world right now. Right. I think we can definitely all agree on that. Peyton. Um, do you have any perspectives specifically on this topic, or would you like to respond to Anthony? A lot of states are agreeing to close their borders because if one person comes in, uh, one person can spread your... Peyton, we're having a bit of technical trouble hearing you. Um, could you restart with that comment, please? Uh, most states are agreeing to close their borders. Uh, because uh, if one person comes in and starts infecting like uh, one person that comes into like another crowd that infects like a thousand people and that could lead to like a resurgence and not flatten the curve. But I think that we should be accommodating like, for example, what about like all the refugees that are stuck where they are with no food, no water, and they're too losing the country and dying like all the refugees from like the middle east we should like have like a case-by-case -case basis of allowing people inside and implementing some basic like social distancing measures but still like advising like uh, the high risk individuals within countries to stay quarantined and advising everyone in countries to like 
be in lockdown still until we can officially flatten the curve. Okay, so I'm hearing kind of the same thing from both of you. I'll, I'll just push back. Uh, I kind of, as just my personal philosophy, I tend to adhere very closely to kind of this Waltzian notion of neorealism. And for those viewers who don't know what that is, um, this guy named Kenneth Waltz basically wrote a book um, called International Politics a while back. And he was the one to argue that states operate in this kind of anarchic system for their own survival. So I would argue in kind of contrast to more neoliberal, they're really economists like uh, Cohen, that states are actually acting responsibly by keeping refugees and others outside of their borders because they should really be caring about their own citizens. Um, so I would argue to a certain extent that state authority in these manners are best when they're looking within, which is not to say I'm arguing for uh, isolationism, but that states act most morally when they act within their own borders. Does anybody want to respond to that? Sure, I'll, I'll respond to a little bit on that. Um, how would uh, neorealism in this case, and looking from within, apply to an issue which strictly has no boundaries on how it proceeds from person to person, individual to individual, nation to nation. It does not care what nation you're from. It does not care uh, what side of a border you're on. All it cares is getting to the next human host. So it doesn't seem that on this issue, um, it is possible to uh, downplay the need of the virus without cooperating with your neighbors. Well, I mean, I would just argue what you should, we should have done in the first uh, place. Yeah, okay, Peyton, let's hear from you. Peyton, we can hear from you now. You know, it's inevitable. In order to, that some cooperation is inevitable in order to achieve the national interests. And without closing their borders, if they do close, without closing their borders, uh, like, for example, everyone's coming in that, like, Maybe, like, for example, if you're studying abroad and you're stuck there, uh, what if, like, they can't come back home and see their family for a few months? Okay, yeah, I, I understand uh, that ar argument, Peyton. What I'm, what I'm kind of suggesting is more in the abstract that states have a duty to close their borders. I guess they can make upset, uh, you know, exceptions for certain citizens, though. Um, and to kind of respond to Anthony as well, maybe it is, it happens, it's incidentally um, beneficial to be cooperative, but it, I would push back on that a little. It seems like in the WTO, another international... WHO. WHO, sorry, my mistake. WHO and other international organizations, I would say WTO as well, um, but in this context, WHO, uh, the World Health Organization has been horribly, horribly... Um, inefficient at tackling this crisis. So, and international institutions, especially from a neoliberal perspective, deal with mitigating the transaction costs to interacting with other states. So even at minimal interaction costs, it looks like it's actually hurting us more than helping us to interact with international institutions. So I would argue- well, the principle do... of neoliberalism is a concept of comparative advantage. And the WHO has not been disastrous. It has recommended implementing a public health emergency uh, to President Trump weeks before Trump officially declared a national emergency. And look where the United States is. As over right, 400,000 so, cases, it's like so, the worst so, hit country on the planet. So if I can make a quick point about all this. Um, so I do agree that um, the best response uh, to coronavirus has been uh, from a country to country standpoint. So countries yes. like South Korea and other countries have done a fantastic job at being able to Hi, Anthony, we're having some technical, can you repeat that, Anthony? We had a little bit of technical difficulty picking you up there. Oh, sure. Uh, no problem. Uh, so I will admit that the case of South Korea is a great uh, point when it comes to the neorealist argument on this. 
Um, and I will say that the international um, uh, uh, response to this, uh, particularly when it comes to the, uni the unified UN, has not been great as they have not been able to meet. Um, however, when it comes to a virus that can transmit, uh, assuming that you shut down your uh, ports and your airports, uh, a virus that um, can transfer from person to person, um, when it comes to a, a physical landmass level, um, it would be better if countries work together when it comes to a highly localized level. For instance, if the countries in Europe were to, to cooperate with their neighbors on this issue to make sure that, um, um, you know, uh, a, a, a water, uh, like rivers and such, are not being um, contaminated um, or other ways that the virus can uh, transmit or that livestock is not coming uh, in and across borders and different issues that can transmit the virus. Um, I don't think each country should be acting on its own accord in this because of how um, the virus is just a, a national uh, when it comes to these affairs. All right, I'll, I'll respond to both of you. Um, it has to, it has to, it has to be, hold it has on, to be hold on a case. Hey, Peyton, let, let, let me respond quickly. Um, we'll get to you, don't worry. Um, so to first go off it, Peyton, ta uh, you talked a little bit about comparative advantage. Um, I'd respond to that in multiple ways. First off, that's pr primarily an economic term uh, used for exchanging resources at varying levels of value. So a uh, country across the sea might have a better time at producing a certain resource than us. I don't see how that applies. Healthcare is generally seen as an inelastic resource. And if anything, America has the best pharmaceutical companies in the world. So I don't see a particular reason why it would be uh, pertinent in this case. Um, if we are to then go, if we are then to go to Anthony, um, I, I concur, Anthony, maybe it's not good. Like, I, I don't want to shut down talks, but for instance, on the United States, Mexico, I want to engage in primarily bilateral talks. I think that gets into kind of a global centric view, a global skeptic view of how the uh, nations interact with each other. And really what that's suggesting is that maybe it's more effective when we have individual bilateral talks than UN talks, because things break down so quickly. And the mechanisms and kind of parliamentary mechanisms, as we've seen, contribute to that. Because it's really hard for us to talk with Mexico when Russia's coming in there and blocking us from talking with the Security Council. So I am suggesting to a certain extent that. And finally, uh, the WHO, while suggesting uh, national emergencies, it didn't want to close borders. And what we should be looking at is closing borders. That's the first and foremost, both this resolution and what the WTO should have been doing. Trump closed borders far before the WHO officially recommended it. So I think there is good grounds to criticize the WHO's take on this. And a final take on the WHO that I think is important is that both Trump and Republicans and even Democrats to a certain extent are right in criticizing the WTO in their bias towards China. I mean, one, WHO. Of, the, one of the w, WHO, yes, Peyton, the WHO uh, wouldn't even bring up Taiwan when somebody asked a question about them. Uh, and Taiwan undoubtedly has had one of the best responses to this virus. Yet, uh, the WHO won't even talk about them because of political issues with China. So I think this gets into it. We're actually seeing a reverse of kind of both what Rosencrantz and Volton argued, um, specifically in Asia, that Asian states actually work better in international institutions by lowering transaction costs, that international institutions are really inefficient at doing these things. Let's hear Peyton, you wanted to say something? <clears throat> Well, that plays into the realist perspective that is really skeptical of international institutions and their ability to like basically govern on like a rolling basis. Sure, we're seeing some of that. Like, for example, Taiwan is loaning many medical supplies to United States. You hear in New York, Andrew Cuomo is asking China for medical supplies. So this is uh, by case by case basis as to like who has like the most resources available to help other countries through this crisis. And yes, we should be uh, limiting the amount of people that come through our borders to prevent the spread of the virus. And we should have some regulations so, so in place. So would you reverse your position, Peyton, that you believe Not we completely. should let in Middle Eastern refugees at this point? 
not completely. I don't want to tell them to go back to their home country and die. Like, okay, but like, I think that's we... a bit of a straw man of the argument being made. We should, like, let them in, like, on a case-by-case basis and strictly enforce, like, very uh, social distancing measures and help and adhere them to very strict health standards and sanitary measures. Okay, what do you think about not only refugees from the Middle East, but quote-unquote refugees from Latin America? How do we deal with that? There are a lot of people coming across the border for economic reasons. How do we process them with the virus? Well, we should, like, engage bilaterally with Mexico to limit their spread across the border. Interesting. Okay, Anthony, do you have a... We should also, like, like stock, like, the border with, like, uh, medical facilities. So uh, we have an effective way of curbing potential, like, uh, the emergence of the violence. So, 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 so if I can make a quick point. So the largest issue with uh, Latin migration as of now is the numbers of people that are coming over would be concentrated and would not be following social distancing standards of either Mexico or the United States. So I agree that we should uh, definitely work in uh, in cooperation with Mexico and other Latin American countries um, in order to um, enforce social distancing rules. So if a migrant was to be in uh, Mexico um, and trying to get into the U.S. as of now, what I would possibly be for is uh, expanding U.S. foreign aid to Mexico in order to uh, put in uh, low-cost housing in Mexico temporary housing as of now, uh, so that um, the Mexican migrants uh, who, or the migrants from other countries who want to come to the U.S. can uh, practice social distancing um, correctly until the transmission is gone. Because if, if they're in mass, in, if they're coming in mass to the U.S. this time, uh, that's going to harm our efforts at social distancing standards and the social distancing attempts in Mexico. So to kind of wrap this conversation back around the resolution, would you two then say states are not justified in fully closing their borders? States should be able, like, expanding on what Anthony was saying, uh, states should be able to, like, engage in foreign aid measures to help others, like, build up their healthcare capacity and economic capacity to be able to deal with the virus and be able to protect their own citizens from economic okay, and okay. Peyton, just a quick, a quick summary. Are you in favor of clo- of state? Do you believe it is moral that states can close their borders as a response to this virus? I believe they should have uh, limits. Okay, so kind of a moderated take. A moderated take, but with like uh, certain restrictions in place. Okay, Anthony, would you say you're more liberal than Peyton on that, or kind of taking a stronger hardline stance like the resolution is? The moral, rest- the moral implications of this extend completely to how each state wants to act bilaterally with each other state when it comes to uh, border security with COVID-19. Okay, so that's kind of a little more hard line than Peyton. It's definitely an anti-neoliberal perspective, i.e. not necessarily I don't, in favor of... St- I don't think are- that... One sec, Anthony, or one sec, Peyton. Let's listen to Anthony. I don't believe that international institutions are the ones that should be dictating uh, border rules when it comes to uh, 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 the spread of the outbreak. I think okay, international that's... institutions ought to like follow and like advise certain policy recommendations and help us uh, with the medical capacities uh, to be able to successfully uh, combat this virus and also uh, help us uh, adjust economically to the virus uh, through like institutions such as the World Bank that can help con- that can help uh, provide relief economic relief to c- well we can we can, we'll talk about the specific international institutions disaster okay that's a good response I'll provide a, a quick last comment then we need to move on to the next resolution um, I would generally say that in regards to state response, uh, I would still stand strong kind of on the classical neorealist response. I myself more lean towards, if anybody here is interested, there's an author called Mastin, uh, Mastern Duno. Uh, he's a neoclassical realist. Uh, very similar to Waltz, though. Uh, he does believe that states are operating kind of this survival hood mentality. 
But on the other hand, we also understand there are contextual importances uh, in how states operate, how, for instance, the UK operates might be very different from the US or China. And those contextual differences are important in an analysis of state behavior. All right, let's move on to the next uh, res It seems like, so I'm gonna take a more hardline stance on this. We'll just do a quick vote. Um, so Anthony, would you be say you're in favor of the resolution resolved? States ought to close their borders. Uh, uh, no, not a no. Okay, sounds good. Peyton? No. All right, I, and I will be yes. So it looks like we've had a fun conversation on this topic. Uh, one, uh, a one versus two here, that's, that's fun. Let's move on to our next topic. This is more um, international focused, uh, specifically on international institutions since we are MUN. And the resolution is resolved. The United Nations ought to take action against COVID-19. All right, um, let's all just start off with this. So on the face, this sounds like obviously, yes, the UN should. I would make the argument that while the UN, the UN should not do anything which they make grand promises. And the reason I say that is there's already so many UN skeptics out there, including myself, that if the UN doesn't have any solvency behind this, which they won't, because as we went over the parliamentary mechanisms, you know, Security Council can't meet because of parliamentary procedure. The GA can't do anything without Security Council approval, and the GA is only meeting to pass um, kind of these grandiose symbolic resolutions that the UN should be used for no more than symbolic kind of solidarity action. I think if the UN attempts to take specific action in this case, it is basically lying to countries. And I definitely think organizations like the WHO have failed in their mandate to do this, and it's going to cause a lot of future harm when we try to coordinate responses to security crises. Let's hear some responses. This time we'll start with Peyton. Well, uh, the UN has an obligation uh, to urge certain actions be taken by countries uh, to provide like some sort of like basic framework of how to navigate through the crisis. Uh, like, for example, like the UN urged global cooperation and like the resolution they passed just like five days ago. And that will be necessary for us to be able like, to find a research uh, necessary to develop a vaccine on the virus. Like if we develop like the technologies necessary by like urging global cooperation. No, well, wait, Peyton, I must push you on this. What has the UN done? Is there any empirical evidence that that UN resolution is actually pushing development of a vaccine? Well, global urging global cooperation uh, will help uh, lead to development of a vaccine. Is there any terrible like, case that that has actually happened? Because like scientists across different countries are actually like sharing like information sooner. And like right now it's looking pretty promising, more promising than previously expected as to like how fast we can develop a vaccine and how uh, quickly we can return to our daily lives. Like for example, they previously estimated 18 months. Now they're estimating like as low as nine months we could develop a vaccine because like uh, countries around the world are putting money uh, to develop the research uh, to like fund a cure for the coronavirus. So uh, the UN is actually doing a good job at like urging global cooperation on this. We'll take Anthony's opinion next. Um, before we do that, I wanted kind of going off this, but, but uh, um, I wanted uh, to read an article uh, out. Wait, one second. But no, I have one more thing. Can all I right, all right, yes, finish. But uh, as I was saying, like, United Nations has been really ineffective at, like, mitigating, like, uh, and implementing some, like, basic uh, global measures, such as, uh, like, enforcing, like, border-to-border -border travel restrictions like enforcing like lockdown measures. Uh, those are mostly been like uh, recommendations from WHO. Like it's up to like countries individually to adopt these actions. Ultimately that's uh, up to like states to develop uh, how they want to deal with this as a matter of public health in the meantime until like we find like a vaccine. All right, and a uh, quick article I'm going to read and then we'll take Anthony's opinion. So this one uh, was a recent article posted by Politico. 
Um, and it was Germany confirms that Trump tried to buy firm working on coronavirus vaccine. Basically, the federal government of the United States attempted to kind of spearhead um, the development of the vaccine uh, by purchasing companies that were engaged in it. Obviously, that made some Germans very unhappy because they thought the United States might begin to monopolize it. Let's hear how that affects um, international institutions' responses, including WHO. Anthony, it's up to you. So do you want me to talk specifically about how that development might deal with uh, power levels in the, in the diplomatic realm? Yeah, you could do that. I'd also, we'd love to hear your opinion on the resolution in general. Yeah, so I'm going to assume for this time that uh, the veto power is not uh, an that the veto is not an issue by the Security Council uh, because that brings in all these pol uh, parliamentary um, um, issues that that uh, murk uh, uh, the entire debate. So um, I do think it is imperative that first of all the UN takes uh, symbolic action, and I think that that symbolic action of uh, a worldwide unity and a worldwide direction of uh, putting down other issues until we deal with this crisis actually does um, have soft power implications when it comes to further discussions between countries because countries who work together on this would be more likely to remember working together on a global pandemic issue when uh, trying to deal with um, um, uh, issues in the future um, like genocide and war and uh, famine and other things that uh, affect uh, countries often cross nationally, such as famine. Um, I think the most important thing for the UN to do outside of symbolic resolution would be to uh, You, Sorry, Anthony, you broke off for a quick moment there. Can you and just information repeat that? And, uh, you broke off. Yeah, for, so yeah. secondly, I think that so secondly, um, I think that the most uh, important thing for the UN to do, uh, other than its symbolic gestures, is to uh, give information out uh, to the countries of the world uh, for uh, general recommendations uh, for um, individuals and nations to do, such as keeping a six-foot distance between people so it's not to transmit the virus. Uh, general points on how the virus can be transmitted person to person and animal to person and whether animals can't get infected or not get infected. It's just general information like that. So everybody has a baseline, uh, no matter what country they come from, um, and able to find general information about the virus. However, on this issue, because the UN is not able to take action uh, substantial action because of its parliamentary issues. I do think that most of the legwork should be done uh, by countries, especially in the global north, uh, because they have the economic resources in order to develop vaccines and to, to uh, develop ventilators and uh, new things that the UN just can't do because of its parliament parliamentary restrictions. All right, that sounds good. I'll, I'll have a quick response. As the first one, I as you said, we'll get to you in a second, Peyton. Um, first off, uh, when it comes to parliamentary lessons, I don't think we can just pass those on. Uh, I think this is a real wake-up call that the UN needs to begin to consider changing its procedure. Uh, uh, Kimo, you just uh, cut out for a second? Yeah, okay, no problem. I'll, I'll start that back up again. Um, first off, I don't think we can get past parliamentary issues. I think this is a real wake-up call that structure the UN... It's, it's fine. Um, structure in the UN needs to be modified and changed because otherwise we can never pass policy. At the same time, my view is kind of like, well, maybe instead of trying to fix the UN towards a centralized force, we should decentralize the UN further. Instead of lying to people and saying, oh, we're going to fix things, we have it more like a global forum where we can have more effective bilateral conversation and alienate those states that don't want to cooperate like Russia. And I think there's some real evidence. I would highly recommend everyone listening to this podcast look up Politics and Process at the United Nations. It's written by Courtney Smith, a 2006. She's an amazing academic that kind of goes over the problems with process in the US, uh, UN. And, you know, we can, in another podcast, go over all those specific process problems. But I think COVID really outlines the structural problems we face. 
Next, uh, I would kind of respond to everybody with, well, look at what the UN's done empirically in the response to Ebola. They weren't, the WHO was not able to raise the money it needed to to combat Ebola. It certainly is not able to fundraise the money it needs to to combat COVID. It wasn't able to successfully combat SARS, really. And we see in every case, it's firm bilateral action happening. Usually the U.S. being involved in that that solves these issues. And what I'm suggesting is we really should not use these international institutions to solve problems. We should use these international institutions to understand the problems and begin the mediation process. But the US should really lead a global coalition as a leader, not kind of this egalitarian, I, I really in a less academic way call it this sense of like hold hands kumbaya sense, because that's failed and it's never happened. That's obviously a very Waltzian, Massenduno realist perspective. But that's my perspective. Let's hear Peyton. You had a response? Uh, well, uh, we are failing in part because of the lack of U.S. leadership. U.S. has taken a willingness uh, to protect uh, itself from the world, uh, again, on, on ill-advised measures. For example, like Trump... Uh, uh, doesn't didn't want to like declare a public health emergency against WHO advice uh, because he wanted to protect the economy. Uh, his view fits purely within like a, a realist perspective. Uh, we've also uh, cut back dramatically on foreign aid, like we did with the twenty uh, with like the earlier uh, AIDS in Africa. The lack yeah, of like U.S. leadership uh, has made the situation much worse. And the okay. GA can't meet that, right now due to like parliamentary procedure. So uh, the lack of like the United States leadership has uh, impaired our ability uh, to formulate a global response uh, to the virus, be able to like implement some basic uh, social distancing measures uh, across uh, country to country to country as the WHO and the United Nations should recommend. So uh, I, a the quick vacuum of US just leadership- for everybody listening. The GA can meet. The Security Council cannot meet. The vacuum of, of United States leadership uh, has led to ambiguity as to the response to the virus. And we're ultimately not taking, uh, assuming our role as we should uh, to help other countries uh, and to recommend uh, global uh, policies that would uh, help us uh, flatten the curve, help us uh, develop a vaccine and a cure that would um, ultimately allow us to return to our daily lives. And I think All right, that, that's, that's and reasonable. United Nations, and United Nations is also is largely built on U.S. global leadership. And that's why it's I think failing. that's kind of my point as well. Let's just be honest, the U.S. is the global leader here. But let's Let's hear Anthony's perspective. Yeah, so uh, the issue that I'm trying to parcel through um, is that the U.S.'s perspective on global leadership on different matters has differed um, um, through its different administrations. So, for instance, President Trump and President Bush stressed uh, America's security concerns and America's uh, military prowess on the, on the world stage. However, President Trump has done a lot to defund certain agencies like the EPA and State Department and other agencies that go a long way in making recommendations and making, uh, uh, for lack of a better word, attempts at influencing. Well, it would be nice if uh, countries in the global north with hold most of the economic uh, uh, power and capital uh, would so graciously uh, lead task forces um, that would deal with these international issues and without having the bureaucracy of the UN. Um, I don't see how that can be feasible because the US really hasn't made many attempts. They've cut funding to the CDC. Of course, they didn't know COVID-19 was coming, but if the US, if the US were to take um, or wanted to take in a realist approach, um, um, a you know, use its soft power 
in order to win the zero-sum game by exerting its influence on the rest of the world and making uh, the rest of the world indebted to the U.S. for its public health security, it would have surely bolstered its um, its a uh, uh, um, health crisis, public health crisis, uh, defending arms. Um, and, so and exported that to the rest of the world. Against both you and Peyton, how do you guys respond to the UN's failure to deal with the Ebola crisis effectively? It sounded like the United States did most of that. The UN really was not able to fulfill its funding promises there. I don't know much about the specifics of what the UN did. I didn't, I didn't uh, intentionally study, or excuse me, I... I well, I did not intentionally study that. I did not study uh, what the UN did on the Ebola crisis. All right, that's fair, Peyton. Uh, me too. All right, yeah. So I'll. But I, but I, but, but I, I will I, make I, one point. I, I want to make will one. make one point. Uh, uh, Peyton, if I may go first, um, the Ebola crisis was mostly a crisis in West Africa. It was not a worldwide pandemic that we see on the slides of COVID-19. Obviously, the Ebola did not have the impact that COVID-19 had on uh, the U.S. and countries, uh, many countries in the global north. So I think that is a adjacent, but not a completely uh, adept um, Well, I think that's my of, point, Anthony. If they yeah. can't solve a regional crisis, why should we trust them to solve a global crisis? I think both the U.S. and uh, the U.N. have definitely failed, which uh, it, it, it posits a need for a uh, probably a fast-moving uh, uh, body um, that does not have to deal with traditional parliamentary procedure when it comes to dealing with such a transnational issue like so, uh, public health. So what is, are you... Are you arguing we should give like the WHO security powers or something? Or I, I, no. I think that no nation, I, I think that no nation should be able to turn over like its own like security uh, over to like an international institution. Okay. We should, never, we should never like turn over like our national like security uh, security policies over our national institution. That's the policy of like them to be able to like. Uh, give like the advice and consent for us to follow. But uh, expand like on Anthony was saying, like uh, other countries are not willing uh, as able to donate medical supplies to us uh, because uh, we have lacked a clear global leadership. And we have certainly alienated a lot of the world and that is hampering our ability to have like a clear uh, to have a clear like position and like tackling the virus on hand. Okay, that's a reasonable. So it's, so, so it's up to like private actors a lot of the way. Uh, like for example, like companies are like um, donating masks. Like the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, like other like uh, billionaires are like uh, putting the money to like. Uh, donate medical supplies and finance cures. So not only states are involved, but I think a lot uh, of like the work that's been done with response to coronavirus has to do with like uh, private actors, not just states, including uh, companies, philanthropists. Okay, I understand that Peyton, and that's kind of what I'm actually arguing. I'm arguing private organizations tend to do much better than the government the reason is the government, as I pointed out before, has to follow all these parliamentary procedures that make it very difficult to actually do real work versus private, the private marketplace always fulfills um, demand and demand is a vaccine. I, I mean, we see that now in the US where there's a lot of very restrictive uh, protocols that exist with the FDA, the Food and Drug Administration. Um, that dealing with this virus like it's so difficult and the entry cost is so high it makes the marketplace not competitive and well, the probably... international institutions tend to reflect these values by only increasing to some extent the transaction costs when traditional scholars argue they would decrease those transaction costs trump 
Trump made a transaction uh, cost higher by cutting funding for the UN, by cutting no funding for our, all these health organizations that would have enabled us to more effectively deal are you, with the virus. Wait, but are you arguing that NGOs had it were a better off under President Obama? Well, they'll be better if they had more funding. Wait, what to NGOs? How, what, what funding did Trump cut to NGOs? Trump cut funding to United Nations. Trump cut funding to the I'm CDC. I'm talking non-governmental organizations. Trump has cut funding for public health research. Any public, cut funding. But not private. I'm talking about private. Most of the research is done in public and private institutions. Yeah, I understand like the that. Like the National Institute of Health, he cut funding to that. Yeah, and I understand that. But what I'm arguing is if we just kind of got out of the way of, of private companies, they would be solving a lot of this. And we see that increasingly in MUN and in the United Nations, actually United Nations, more and more resolutions seem to be incorporating NGOs versus governmental bodies. And it just seems like an interesting feat, it, to some extent a neoliberal feat, really, that yeah. the private market is beginning to replace a lot of governmental bodies. I think that's an interesting phenomenon, especially from a neorealist perspective. And realists really like uh, hoarding those resources within the state. But it seems that increasingly multinational corporations are being more efficient at tackling these problems. Let's hear from Anthony. We haven't heard from Anthony, do you have anything to say on this? Uh, sure, about what specifically there was we're a talking lot in about there. Yeah, we're talking about kind of, well, maybe the UN shouldn't directly act because, and as neoliberals would argue like Rosencrantz and Cohen, that multinational corporations along with the kind of informal talks with these institutions are much more efficient at solving these problems than governmental institutions. Well, I think um, a lot so research so there so in my mind there are two major issues with uh covid-19 that i think can be solved in different ways so the first issue is uh regulation on social and recommendation on social distancing and uh limiting the transmission of the virus now that i think is best done specifically if the government does it because companies have it in their best interest a lot of companies do anyway um, there are specific cases, uh, uh, retail cases like uh, GameStop, I know, and other retailers that refuse to close even under government recommendations and even requirements to close all non-essential businesses. So I think it's necessary for the governments, local governments and state governments and federal governments to get involved um, in uh, uh, limiting social dis distance, social interaction in order to limit the transmission. Now, when it comes to the research um, side of things, uh, I think um, it would be best for a three-pronged approach um, where governments, um, if the studies show that private institutions do better than government institutions at coming up with uh, treatments and vaccines of uh, different diseases, I would like to see uh, governments like the U.S. work with private institutions in order to find um, uh, 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 treatments to these issues. But I also think if we gave some sort of emergency fund to the WHO and to international bodies, I would actually like to see some structural change in the UN so that uh, apolitical transnational uh, issues such as public health crises um, have some sort of uh, international emergency fund waiting to be used for research. Um, okay, I would but like to see some well, back well, on that. Let me, sure. let me respond. Yeah, sure, Peyton, go ahead. It's up to governments to fund a research and development uh, undertaken by private companies necessary uh, to uh, fund and deliver uh, effective measures such as like uh, developing like a vaccine, developing treatment drugs. Wait, Peyton, what, what empirical evidence suggests that? Like, do you have any examples? I'm saying, I'm saying the U.S. should have more cooperation with businesses um, so that they can find research. 
I, yeah, I, I think understand the more that. pronged asking, approach is possible. I'm asking Peyton where yeah. where he's getting the argument empirically. The, the, the Japanese drug, for example. It's purely government funded and it's working? Well, uh, it's done with government funding. Uh, and like the U.S. is running trials of it as we speak. Right, but it's but gone, they, I guess, by, but by if a they private pure, institution. But if the private companies like purely like reg, uh, d- uh, develop the drugs and like uh, put them on the marketplace, uh, that could potentially lead to price gouging. Right. I, I mean, short of getting into an economic conversation, I would actually argue, I guess I'm beginning to sound like a libertarian here, but um, I, I actually think price gouging, Getting rid of price gouging on pharmaceutical markets decreases competition. But regardless of that quite edgy argument, I would say, um, I I think to focus this back, it would be, do we think the UN should be taking these actions? All of us right now are sounding like we're taking a very bilateral approach. That the states should be doing it. What well, the UN so should be taking should be like uh, making like the recommendations uh, to countries uh, to be able to follow some basic public health policies such as social distancing measures, recommending uh, high risk individuals to stay inside and uh, to limit your contact, stay home if you can. That's a basic soft power approach they can take uh, using uh, whatever grandiose resolution they may pass that will like okay. uh, enable us to follow basic public health measures. And it's up to us like to cooperate like on making yes, yes, research I, ne- necessary uh, to be able to Peyton, let's get Anthony's last uh, comments here. We're, we're almost out of time here. So, Anthony, do you have any last comments you want to round up before we vote on this resolution? On the particulars, I would say that the UN uh, should uh, uh, only make recommendations uh, in that they actually don't – sorry, uh, let me uh, go back on that point – that they don't make recommendations. What they do is they present an information bank of scientific literature that uh, posits one opinion or another. It should be countries that recommend uh, what uh, uh, social distancing policies they follow or not. Okay, yeah, that, that sounds uh, like an interesting perspective. Peyton, do you have any last words? Uh, well, uh, yes, uh, countries do have the last say on this matter. Uh, United Nations uh, can be like the scientific literacy, can be present like the scientific literacy backed up by evidence, peer-reviewed articles, everything uh, for countries to be able to protect their own citizens and pre- to uh, prevent the rate of infection from going back up. But uh, we're also forgetting and uh, forgetting to account for uh, countries that don't have like the resource rich uh, to be able to be uh, economically and like resourcefully sound uh, with dealing with the virus like in the long run. Like for example, uh, remember like uh, third world countries like in Africa, like people have to walk around uh, to be able to like get food and water. And like a lot of times it's a matter of like life or death every day in those like poor and low income countries. So the United Nations uh, definitely has to play a role in uptaking the medical capacity uh, in those countries to be able to deal uh, with the coronavirus. And it's also up to uh, countries to partake in that. So uh, ultimately, United Nations uh, countries are like partakers in like a global health policy initiatives. And those are all things to account for. Yeah. Okay. So I understand that perspective, Peyton. My kind of final last words, I would urge everyone to read up on the literature on this. Um, I think we all brought up a lot of concerns with the UN via structure. We'll certainly have a podcast sometime in the future on that going into the structure of the UN. I would urge everyone, I don't mean to shill books on this podcast, but read Politics and Process the United Nations by Courtney Smith. It's a great book. Uh, Another great author, he eventually became the U.S. Secretary of State, was uh, Dean Rusk's Parliamentary Diplomacy. My whole take on this is that governmental institutions as part of their intrinsic structure are inclined to poor immediate responses. They necessarily can't respond quickly because if they do, 
they begin to drift into zones of authoritarianism. That's why I think NGOs are kind of the future here. And short of NGOs, we should really recline back into our states. Nobody votes for the UN delegates. Nobody votes for what the UN does within our own states. And it's really something of an anti-democratic system. It's really Republican because our president appoints them and you vote for the president. But I think kind of at the end of this, my view is, no, the UN should be more of a form. It shouldn't be taking action. I want to, in my personal opinion, roll back on some of these globalist measures and push more towards real empirical solutions that have structures that are plausible to implement, given that the current UN structures are inclined to not work, i.e. the Security Council. That's my take on it. I think we had a great discussion. Thank you so much, everybody, for logging on. We're going to have a few announcements. Oh, of course, I forgot. We need to vote on the resolution before we end. So guys, uh, the resolution is resolved. The United Nations ought to take action against COVID-19. Anthony? Uh, because of my proposed three-pronged approach of uh, companies, uh, local gov uh, uh, federal governments, and the WHO of researching the virus on that specific matter, I would have to vote uh, yes on this resolution. Peyton? Uh, does this entail decentralization of the UN? No. This is just the UN. It, should the UN take action against COVID-19? It's not my proposal at all, Peyton. Uh, because uh, if we decentralize the UN, that limits the uh, United Nations' ability uh, to be able to work with NGOs. And a lot of NGOs depend on the UN. Okay, Peyton, this is not companies. talking about... So is it a yes vote or a no vote? Well, I'm voting yes on that the United Nations should take action against COVID-19 uh, to be able to implement and advise certain public health uh, policies and recommendations for uh, to successfully uh, defeat uh, the spread of the virus and to uh, successfully develop the research uh, necessary to deal with the virus. Thank medically. you, Peyton. We just, sorry, we got to finish up here, folks. Um, and mine, folks, you heard my spiel. I'm a clear no. All right, we're going to now move on to some quick announcements before we end today. Peyton, can you take that away, please? Uh, give me one second. Uh, cool. Uh, well, uh, as you know, uh, we are part of MUN, uh, Mayunai Nations. Uh, that's sort of uh, been our topic tonight, international relations. Uh, we have uh, travel teams. Uh, and conference staff, we're having uh, bi-weekly meetings. Uh, we go to conferences for cheaper than you would go for conventionally to places like USC, Europe, debating policy, resolutions, parliamentary procedures with other delegates for both conference staff and travel teams bi-weekly through Zoom, uh, uh, Tuesdays 7 to 8 and Wednesdays 7 to 8. Uh, our next podcast is next week. Uh, just fill out the Google form to be a guest. If you have some interest in international relations or the UN uh, or on trying something new, uh, then join MUN or be a guest on our next podcast. Yes. Thank you so much, everybody. Hopefully next time we will get some uh, more questions and comments so we can go over public feedback on this. Um, we yeah, that'd be fantastic. We'd love to hear from you. We'd love to hear questions, you know, challenge our viewpoints. That always makes it more interesting. Then, until next time, folks, thank you all for tuning in to our podcast, uh, Inquire, uh, brought to you by MUN at UCI. Thank you all so much, and have a great and safe evening. Thank you, everybody. Good night. Good night. <laughs>